Chapter Eleven of the Romantic by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Eleven. She would remember forever the talk they had on the balcony that day while Antwerp was falling. They were standing there, she and John Conway and Sutton, looking over the station and the railway lines to the open country beyond, the fields, the tall slender trees, the low mounds of the little hills bristling and dark. Round the corner of the balcony they could see into the place below. It was filled with a thick black cloud of refugees. Antwerp was falling. Presently the ambulance train would come in and they would have to go over there to the station with their stretchers and carry out the wounded. Meanwhile they waited. John brooded. His face was heavy and sombre with discontent. No, he said, no, it isn't good enough. What isn't? What we're doing here, going to all those little tin-pot places. The real fighting isn't down there. They ought to send us to Antwerp. I suppose they send us where they think we're most wanted. I don't believe they do. We were fools not to have insisted on going to Antwerp, instead of letting ourselves be stuck here in a rotten sideshow. We've had enough to do, anyhow, said Sutton. And there isn't anybody but us and Mac to do it, Charlotte said. John's eyebrows twisted. Yes, but we're not in it. I want to be in it, in the big thing, the big dangerous thing. Sutton sighed and got up and left them. John waited for the closing of the door. Does it strike you, he said, that Billy isn't very keen? No, it doesn't. What do you mean? I notice that he's jolly glad when he can get an indoor job. That's because they're short of surgeons. He only wants to do what's most useful. I didn't say he had cold feet. Of course he hasn't. Billy would go to Antwerp like a shot if they'd let him. He feels just as we do about it. That's why he got up and went away. He'd go, but he wouldn't enjoy it. Oh, don't talk about enjoying. Charlie, you don't mean to say that you're not keen. No, it's only that I don't care as much as I did about what you call the romance of it, and I do care more about the solid work. It seems to me that it doesn't matter who does it so long as it's done. I'd very much rather I did it than McLean, so would you. Yes, I would, but I'd be sorry if poor little Mac didn't get any of it. And all the time I know it doesn't matter which of us it is. It doesn't matter whether we're in danger or out of danger, or whether we're in the big thing or a little one. Don't you want to be in the big thing? Yes, I want, but I know my wanting doesn't matter. I don't matter. None of us matters. That was how she felt about it now that it had come to defeat now that antwerp was falling yesterday they she and john had been vivid entities intensely real living and moving in the war as in a containing space that was real enough since it was there but real like hell or heaven or god not to be grasped or felt in its reality only the stretch of it that they covered was real the roads round ghent the burning villages the places where they served berlere and mele katrecht and zele the wounded men. Yesterday her thoughts about John had mattered, her doubt and fear of him and her pain, her agony of desire that he should be, should be always what she loved him for being, and her final certainty had been the one important, the one real thing. Today she had difficulty in remembering all that, as if they hadn't really been. Today they were unimportant to themselves and to each other, small not quite real existences enveloped by an immense reality that closed in on them alive 
black palpitating defeat it made nothing of them of their bodies nothing but the parts they worked with feet and hands nothing mattered nothing existed but the war and the armies the belgian army beaten antwerp was falling and afterwards it would be ghent and then ostend and then there would be no more belgium but john wouldn't hear of it ghent wouldn't fall it won't fall because it isn't a fortified city she objected but it'll surrender it'll have to it won't if the germans come anywhere near we shall drive them back they are near they are all round in a ring with only a little narrow opening up there and the rings getting closer it's easier to push back a narrow ring than a wide one it's easier to break through a thin ring than a thick one and who's going to push we are the british we'll come pouring in hundreds of thousands of us through that little narrow opening up there if we only would of course we shall if i thought we wouldn't if i thought we were going to let the belgians down if we betrayed them my god i'd kill myself no no i wouldn't that wouldn't hurt enough i'd give up my damned country and be a naturalized belgian why they trust us they trust us to save antwerp if we don't that wouldn't be betrayal it would the worst kind it would be like betraying a wounded man or a woman like me betraying you jeanne you needn't look like that it's so bad that it can't happen through the enveloping sadness she felt a prick of joy seeing him so valiant so unbeaten in his soul it supported her certainty his soul was so big that nothing could satisfy it but the big thing the big dangerous thing he wouldn't even believe that antwerp was falling she knew she knew there was not the smallest doubt about it any more she saw it happen it happened in the village near lokeren the village whose name she couldn't remember the germans had taken lokeren that morning they were in lokeren at any minute they might be in the village you had to pass through a little town to get to it and there they had been told that they must not go on and they had gone on and in the village they were told that they must go back and they had not gone back they had been given five minutes to get in their wounded and they had been there three-quarters of an hour she and john working together and trixie rankin with mclean and two of his men charlotte had been sorry for sutton and gwinnie and the rest of mclean's corps who had not come out with them to this new place but had been sent back again to mela where things had been so quiet all morning that they hadn't filled their ambulances and half of them had hung about doing nothing she had fretted at the stupidity which had sent them where they were not wanted but here there were not enough hands for the stretchers and charlotte was wanted every second of the time from the first minute you could see what you were in for the retreat and for an instant in the blind rush and confusion of it she had lost sight of john she had turned the car round and left it with its nose pointing towards ghent trixie rankin and the mclean men were at the front cars taking out the stretchers john and mclean were going up the road she had got out her own stretcher and was following them when the battery came tearing down the road and cut them off it tore headlong swerving and careening with great rattling and crashing noises she could see the faces of the men thrown back swaying there was no terror in them only a sort of sullen anger and resentment she stood on the narrow sandy track beside the causeway to let it pass and when a gap came in the train she dashed through to get to john and john was not there when all the artillery had passed he was not there only mclean going on up the middle of the street by himself she ran after him and asked him what had happened to john 
He turned, dreamy and deliberate, utterly unperturbed. John, he said, had gone on to look for a wounded man who was said to have been taken into one of those houses there, on the right, in the lane. She went down the lane with her stretcher, and McLean waited for them at the top. The doors of the houses were open. Flemish women stood outside, looking up to the street. There was one house with a shut door, a tall green door. She thought that would be the one that John had gone into. She rapped, and he opened the door and came striding out, holding his head high. He shut the door quietly and looked at her, an odd look, piercing and grave. Dead, he said. And when McLean met them, he said it again, dead. The wounded were being brought down from Lokeren in trams that ran onto a siding behind a little fir plantation outside the village. At the wide top of the street, a table of boards and trestles stood by the foot-track, and the stretchers were laid on it as they came in, and the wounded had their first bandaging and dressings there. McLean took up his place by this table, and the stretcher-bearers went backwards and forwards between the village and the plantation. Beyond the plantation, the flagged road stretched flat and grey, then bent in a deep curve and on the wider sweep of the curve a row of tall, slender trees stood up like a screen. It would be round the turn of the road under the trees that the Germans would come when they came. You couldn't lose this sense of them, coming on behind there, not yet seen, but behind, coming on, pursuing the retreat of the batteries. Every now and then they found themselves looking up towards the turn, the grey bending sweep and the screen of tall trees had a fascination for them, a glamour, and above the movements of their hands and feet their minds watched, intent, excited, but without fear. There was no fear in the village. The women came out of their houses carrying cups of water for the men's thirst. They seemed to be concerned not with the coming of the Germans, but with the bringing in of the wounded and the presence of the English ambulance in their street and the four stretcher-bearers came and went from house to house and between the village and the plantation, working, working steadily. Yet they were aware all the time of the pursuing terror behind the turn of the road. They were held still in their intentness. Over all of them was a quiet, fixed serenity. McLean's body had lost its eager, bustling energy and was still. His face was grave, preoccupied and still. Only Trixie Rankin went rushing and calling out to her quiet man in a fierce, dominating excitement. And in John's face and in his alert body there was happiness, happiness that was almost ecstasy. It ran through and shone from him, firm and still, like a flame that couldn't go out. It penetrated her and made her happy and satisfied and sure of him. She had seen it leap up in him as he swung himself into the seat beside her when they started. He was restless, restless every day until they were sent out. He couldn't wait in peace before they had set off on the adventure, as if he were afraid that at the last minute something would happen to dash his chance from him. She couldn't find this passionate uneasiness in herself. She waited with a stolid trust in the event, but she had something of his feeling. After all, it was there, the romance, the fascination, the glamour, you couldn't deny it any more than you could deny the beating of the blood in your veins. It was their life. They had been in the village three-quarters of an hour. John and Charlotte waited while McLean at his table was putting the last bandage on the last wound. In another minute they would be gone. It was then that the Belgian Red Cross man came running to them. Had they taken a man with a wound in his back, a bad wound, as big as that? No? 
then he was still here and he had got to take him to the ambulance no he didn't know where he was he might be in one of those houses where they took in their wounded or he might be up there by the tramway in the plantation would they take a stretcher and find him he had to go back to the tramway the last tram was coming in from lokeren he ran back fussy and a little frightened john shouted out hold on mclean there's another tram coming and set off up the street they had taken all the men out of the houses therefore the man with the bad wound must have been left somewhere by the plantation they went there carrying their stretcher going going up to the last minute in delight in the undying thrill of the danger the wounded man was not in the plantation as they looked for him the tram from lokeren slid in red cross men on the steps clinging the doors were flung open and the wounded men came out stumbling falling pushing each other somebody cried no stretchers damned bad management with the germans on our backs a red cross man with a puffed white face stood staring at john and charlotte stupefied are they coming john said coming they'll be here in ten minutes five minutes he snarled a terrified animal he had caught sight of their stretcher and snatched at it thrusting out his face the face of a terrified animal open mouth and round palpitating eyes he lifted his hand as though he would have struck at charlotte but john pushed him back he was brutalized made savage and cruel by terror he had a lust to hurt you can't have our stretcher charlotte said she could see they didn't want it this was the last tram the serious cases had been sent on first all these men could walk or hobble along somehow with help but they were the last in the retreat of the wounded they were the men who had been nearest to the enemy and they had known the extremity of fear you can't have it it's wanted for a badly wounded man where is he we don't know we're looking for him ah pa we can't wait till you find him you think we're going to stand here to be taken for one man they went on through the plantation stumbling and growling dragging the wounded out into the road if charlotte said we only knew where he was john stood there silent his head was turned towards the far end of the wood the lokeren end the terror of the wood held him he seemed to be listening listening but only half awake here where the line stopped a narrow track led downwards out of the wood charlotte started to go along it come on she said she saw him coming quickly but withdrawn sleep-walking feet the track led into a muddy alley at the back of the village there was a house there and a woman stood at the door beckoning she ran up to them he's here she whispered he's here he lay on his side on the flagged floor of the kitchen his shirt was ripped open and in his white back below the shoulder blade there was a deep red wound like a pit with a wide mouth gaping he was ugly a flamand he had a puffed face with pushed-out lips and a scrub of red beard but charlotte loved him they carried him out through the wood onto the road he lay inert humped up heavy they had to go slowly so slowly that they could see the wounded and the red cross men going on far before them down the street the flagged road swayed and swung with the swinging bulge of the stretcher as they staggered the shafts kept on slipping and slipping her grasp closed tighter and tighter her arms ached in their sockets but her fingers and the palms of her hands were firm and dry they could keep their hold they had only gone a few yards along the road when suddenly john stopped and sank his end of the stretcher compelling charlotte to lower hers too what did you do that for 
We can't, Charlotte. He's too damned heavy. If I can, you can. He didn't move. He stood there, staring with his queer, hypnotized eyes at the man lying in the middle of the road, at the red pit in the white back, at the wide, ragged lips of the wound gaping. For goodness sake, pick him up. It isn't the moment for resting. Look here. It isn't good enough. We can't get him there in time. You're, you're not going to leave him. We've got to leave him. We can't let the whole lot be taken just for one man. We'll be taken if you stand here talking. He went on a step or two, slouching, then stood still waiting for her, ashamed. He was changed from himself, seized and driven by the fear that had possessed the men in the plantation. She could see it in his retreating eyes. She cried out. Her voice sounded sharp and strange. John, you can't leave him. The wounded man, who had lain inert, thinking that they were only resting, now turned his head at her cry. She saw his eyes shaking, palpitating with terror. You frighten him, she said. I won't have him frightened. She didn't really believe that John was going. He went slowly, still ashamed, and stopped again and waited for her. Come back, she said, this minute, and pick up that stretcher and get on. I tell you it isn't good enough. Oh, go then, if you're such a damned coward, and send Mac to me, or Trixie. They'll have gone. He was walking backwards, his face set towards the turn of the road. Come on, you little fool, you can't carry him. I can, and I shall, if Mac doesn't come. You'll be taken, he shouted. I don't care. If I'm taken, I'm taken. I shall carry him on my back. While John still went backwards, she thought, It's all right. If he sees I'm not coming, he won't go. He'll come back to the stretcher. But John had turned and was running. Even then she didn't realize that he was running away, that she was left there with the wounded man. Things didn't happen like that. People ran away all of a sudden, in panics, because they couldn't help it. They didn't begin by going slowly and stopping to argue and turning round and walking backwards. They were gone before they knew where they were. She believed that he was going for the ambulance. One moment she believed it and the next she knew better. As she waited in the road, conscious of the turn, the turn with its curving screen of tall trees, her knowledge, her dreadful knowledge, came to her, dark and evil, creeping up and up. John wasn't coming back. He would no more come back than he had come back the other day. Sutton had come. The other day had been like today. John was like that. Her mind stood still in amazement, seeing, seeing clearly what John was like. For a moment she forgot about the Germans. She thought, I don't believe Mac's gone. He wouldn't go until he got them all in. Mac would come. Then she thought about the Germans again. All this was making it much more dangerous for Mac and everybody, with the Germans coming round the corner any minute. She had no business to stand there thinking. She must pick that man up on her back and go on. She stooped down and turned him over on his chest. Then, with great difficulty, she got him up onto his feet. She took him by the wrists and, stooping again, swung him onto her shoulder. These acts, requiring attention and drawing on all her energy, dulled the pain of her knowledge. When she stood up with him, she saw John and McLean coming to her. She lowered her man gently back onto the stretcher. The Flamand, thinking that she had given it up and that he was now abandoned to the Germans, groaned. It's all right, she said. He's coming. She saw McLean holding John by the arm and in her pain there was a sharper pang. She had the illusion of his being dragged back unwillingly. McLean smiled as he came to her. 
he glanced at the flamand lying heaped on his stretcher he's been too much for you has he too much oh yes instantly she saw that john had lied and instantly she backed his lie she hated mclean thinking she had failed but anything was better than his knowing the truth john and mclean picked up the stretcher and went on quickly charlotte walked beside the flamand with her hand on his shoulder to comfort him again her pity was like love from the top of the village she could see the opening of the lane down there was the house with the tall green door where the dead man was john had said he was dead supposing he wasn't or supposing he was still warm and limp like the boy at melle she must know it was a thing she must know for certain or she would never have any peace and when the flamand was laid out on mclean's table while mclean dressed his wound she slipped down the lane and opened the green door the man lay on a row of packing-cases with his feet parted she put one hand over his heart and the other on his forehead under the lock of blood-stained hair he was dead stiff dead and cold his tunic and shirt had been unbuttoned to ease his last breathing she had a queer baffled feeling of surprise and incompleteness as if some awful sense in her would have been satisfied if she had seen that he had been living when john had said that he was dead Today would then have been linked on firmly to the other day john stood at the top of the lane he scowled at her as she came what do you think you're doing he said i went to that house to see if the man was dead you'd no business to i told you he was dead i wanted to make sure that evening she had just gone to her room and somebody knocked at her door mclean stood outside straddling his way when he had got something important on hand he asked if he might come in and speak to her for a minute she sat down on the edge of her bed and he sat on gwinnie's elbows crooked out hands planted on wide parted knees he leaned forward looking at her his face innocent and yet astute his thick expressionless eyes clear now and penetrating he seemed to be fairly humming with activity left over from the excitement of the day he was always either dreamy and withdrawn or bursting bursting with energy and at odd moments he would drop off suddenly to sleep with his chin doubled on his breast recovering from his energy perhaps he had just waked up now to this freshness look here he said you didn't break down that man wasn't too heavy for you he was he was an awful weight i couldn't have carried him a yard that won't do charlotte i saw you take him on your back she could feel the blood rising up in her face before him he was hurting her with shame he persisted merciless it was conway who broke down she had tears now nobody knows he said gently but you and me i want to talk to you about him he must be got away from the front he must be got out of belgium you always wanted to get him away only because i saw he would break down how could you tell i'm a psychotherapist it's my business to tell but she was still on the defensive you never liked him i neither like nor dislike him to me conway is simply a sick man if i could cure him can't you not as you think i can't turn his cowardice into courage i might turn it into something else but not that that's why i say he ought to go home you must tell him i can't couldn't billy tell him well hardly he's his commandant can't you not i you know what he thinks about me what 
that I've got a grudge against him, that I'm jealous of him. You thought it yourself. Did I? You did. Look here, I say. I wanted to take you three into my corps, and you'd have been sent home after the Berlera affair if I hadn't spoken for you. So much for my jealousy. I only thought you were jealous of John. Why, it was I who got him sent out that first day. Was it? Yes. I wanted to give him his chance. And, he added meditatively, I wanted to know whether I was right. I wanted to see what he would do. I don't think it now, she said, reverting. That's all right. He laughed his brief, mirthless laugh, the ascent of his egoism. But his satisfaction had nothing personal in it. He was pleased because justice, abstract justice, had been done. But she suspected his sincerity. He did things for you, not because he liked you, but for some other reason, and he would be so carried away by doing them that he would behave as though he liked you when he didn't, when all the time you couldn't for one minute rouse him from his immense indifference. She knew he liked her for sticking to her post and for taking the wounded man on her back, because that was the sort of thing he would have done himself and he had only helped John because he wanted to see what he would do. Therefore she suspected his sincerity. But no, he wasn't jealous. And now, he went on, you must get him to go home at once, or he'll have a bad breakdown. You've got to tell him, Charlotte. She stood up, ready. Where is he? By himself, in his room. She went to him there. He was sitting at his little table. He had been trying to write a letter, but he had pushed it from him and left it. You could see he was absorbed in some bitter meditation. She seated herself at the head of his bed on his pillow, where she could look down at him. John, she said, you can't go on like this. Like what? He held his head high, but the excited, happy light had gone out of his eyes. They stared, not as though they saw anything, but withdrawn, as though he were contemplating the fearful memory of his fear. And she was sorry for him, so sorry that she couldn't bear it. She bit her lip lest she should sob out with pain. Oh, she said, and her pain stopped her. I don't know what you're talking about going on like this. I'm going on. What's the good? You've had enough. If I were you, I should go home. You know you can't stand it. What? Go and leave my cars to Sutton? McLean could take them. I don't know how long McLean signed on for. I signed on for the duration of the war. There wasn't any signing on. Well, if you like, I swore I wouldn't go back till it was over. Yes, and supposing it happens again. What should happen again? What happened this afternoon, and it wasn't the first time? Do you know what happened? I saw what happened. You simply went to pieces. My dear Charlotte, you went to pieces, if you like. I know that's what you told Mac, and he knows how true it is. Does he? Well, he shan't have my ambulances. You don't suppose I'm going to let McLean fire me out of Belgium. I suppose he put you up to this. He stood up as a sign to her to leave him. I don't see that there's anything more to be said. There's one thing. She slid to her feet. You swore you'd stick till the war's over. I swore, if I had to choose between you and the wounded, it shouldn't be you. You haven't got to choose. You've only got to obey orders. His face stiffened. He looked like some hard commander imposing an unanswerable will. The next time, he said, you'll be good enough to remember that I settle what risks are to be taken, not you. Her soul stiffened too and was hard. She stood up against him with her shoulder to the door. 
It sounds all right, she said. But the next time, I'll carry him on my back all the way. She went to bed with her knowledge. He funked and lied. The two things she couldn't stand, his funk and his lying, were a real part of him. And it was as if she had always known it, as if all the movements of her mind had been an effort to escape her knowledge. She opened her eyes. Something hurt them. Gwinny, coming late to bed, had turned on the electric light. And as she rolled over, turning her back to the light and to Gwinny, her mind shifted. It saw suddenly the flame leaping in John's face, his delight in danger, that happiness he felt when he went out to meet it. Happiness springing up bright and new every day. That was a real part of him. She couldn't doubt it. She knew. And she was left with her queer, baffled sense of surprise and incompleteness. She couldn't see the nature of the bond between these two realities. That was his secret, his mystery. End of chapter 11. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.